Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissime. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 24 Unimagined, Unprepared for, Unknown Work on the third task halted immediately, though Riddle left no illusions that it might have been cancelled outright or even postponed. Never mind the treachery of one of the Triwizard Tournament's organizing judges, Riddle had made his vow with the Goblet of Fire and had no intention of being ejected from the school that he had fought so long to seize. If the efforts of all involved had to be redoubled thenceforth to make up lost progress, then so be it. Following Karkaroff's fighting retreat from Hogwarts, the dungeons were immediately put off limits. Even the Slytherins were barred from walking down there and had to reach their common room by a flue that had been set up in the kitchen's fires. This remained the case until the next morning, when Riddle announced over breakfast that other representatives of the Russian government had been rushed to Britain overnight so that they could take custody of Mertvago's body, and that, in other news, the Ministry had already reapportioned additional funding to cover more workers and longer schedules for the third task. It had been rumored that Mertvago's remains had been a ghastly sight, and within a couple of days later the rumor was confirmed. The Crab Catch boys were distributing photos, and it was anyone's guess how they had managed to get down there. Most of the betting money said that the Weasley twins were involved somehow, but Hermione, had she been a betting witch, would have put her gold on the notion that Riddle had just let them down there. Anyway, she had no interest in the photos. The Inferius had been quite enough. Draco was mostly just jealous that the crab catches hadn't asked him to be their middleman. It's pure Ravencrow bias, of course, he whined. They'd rather work with another member of their house, even if I could do a better job. Could you really? asked Neville. Do you think that Edgecombe could out-haggle me? Be kind, Neville, Hermione interjected. Draco's gotten used to his muggle currency monopoly. Draco shot her a dirty look, but there was nothing serious behind it. I was selling it as exotic art, and I can defend myself, thank you very much. Sure you can, Hermione said. Jumping on top of the market like this is a little nouveau riche, don't you think, Draco? Neville teased. Cut it out! What's this about going two on one with me? Draco said, smirking. I thought you said to be kind. After lunch, Hermione pulled him aside. Columba followed along, despite being assigned to a completely different class, but kept her distance. Are you holding up all right? Draco looked around for a few seconds before he finally answered. Okay. Draco looked at Columba from out of the corner of his eye. Father spoke with me after. I think he might have pulled me from Hogwarts, you know, but that could never happen. And I don't want to be pulled out anyway, Draco said before Hermione could ask. There's nowhere in Britain that's safer than Hogwarts. Draco, Hermione said as kindly as she could. Two people have been killed in as many months. Four people, if you count Yaxley and Barrykov. Someone had untransfigured Barrycloth's goldfish head, but not until he had suffocated on dry land. Compared to the other two Aurors, Cornisher had gotten off lightly, but she had still been sent to St. Mungo's for a new lung. That was hardly ever a pleasant process. That may be so, and yet there's still nowhere safer than Hogwarts, Draco insisted. People die in other places too, you know. Besides, the Aurors practically committed suicide. They were sloppy. And you expect them to do better someplace else? 
That was one of a few consistent messages that were coming out of the Daily Prophet. Hermione hadn't thought that there would be much to investigate about a crime that seemed so cut and dry and practically closed. They knew who did it, and he had the means and motive to kill not just Bert Vago, but a couple of other people as well. But she'd been proven wrong by the succession of articles that the Prophet continued to publish. Had the tournament been nothing but an elaborate plot to kill Mertvago? Turn to page Thurisas three for further speculation. Why had the Aurors performed so incompetently and disregarded Riddle's clear-sighted counsel? Let us continue the discussion on page Haglas five. Hermione didn't think that Draco was faring as well as he claimed. Except in potions, he had a tendency to lose focus when he was on his own, which was unlike him. He was a bright student, and he at least pretended to pay attention if he was bored. Hermione had never taken him to be the sort of boy who might get lost in his thoughts, not under normal circumstances, but that curious distractedness went away when his father or sister could see him, disappeared as though there were nothing wrong. Maybe he just doesn't have the space to think, Neville suggested when he brought it up to him in private. Columba hasn't let him out of his sight if she can help it, and Professor Malfoy, well, they love Draco, but maybe they're both a little overprotective. But you would think, Neville added, that if Draco were really all right, he might have brought up what happens just once. There was a difference between handling something well and not being affected in the slightest. Hermione could believe in the first, but not the other, not for this. She couldn't imagine being not even a little bothered by the sudden violence. While Hermione had been occupied by the Inferius, the other students and the professors still had the real Karkaroff and a couple of imperious Aurors to deal with. According to Neville, Riddle had directed the students to focus on shield charms and other defensive spells, which was hard to criticize since any student that attacked and missed would probably hit another student, and no students had been injured, but it was still understandably... was traumatic the right word? But Draco continued to insist that nothing was wrong. That afternoon, the final class period of the day was cancelled so that everyone could attend a memorial service for Crescentenum at Vago, which took place at the Quidditch pitch, where the seats had been lowered to a quarter of their Quidditch time height. There was no assigned seating. Nevertheless, the Durmstrangers mostly sat among themselves, gloomy and disquieted. Hermione wasn't very surprised. At breakfast and lunch, too, they had mostly sat among themselves, hesitating to mingle even with the Slytherins at whose table they'd been eating for the better part of a year. Hermione and Fleur sat close to Draco, who was flanked on either side by his sister and his father. Professor Malfoy was evidently taking advantage of the disorganized seating to place himself closer to his son. "'Beautiful weather, is it not, Professor?' Fleur said over Hermione. "'Oh, oh yes.' Professor Malfoy said absent-mindedly. The next Quidditch matches will probably proceed on schedule, you know. So that should be good. Stormy weather makes Quidditch more dangerous. I have not become a peach father. I can handle inclement weather. All the same, Lucius said, cutting off his son before Draco could build up steam. Better for the sky to be clear. I hadn't realized that Quidditch was picking up again, Hermione said as if anyone would have expected her to have paid attention to news like that. Does the headmaster really just want to carry on as normal? He thinks that it's the best thing, Professor Malfoy said. It isn't as though we are pretending that nothing has happened, but Karkaroff would like nothing better than to disrupt our lives and our nation, so we must carry on, he continued. 
and Hermione got the sense that at least part of that had been rehearsed. Fleur observed him carefully from out of the corner of her eye, but said nothing more. Riddle and a few others had been seated on the ground, in golden chairs arranged in several rows behind a marble sarcophagus, whose lid had been set askew so that the empty interior was visible from Hermione's seat. Flitwick sat on Riddle's left, and Padfoot lay on the ground near their feet. On the opposite side from Phileas was an austere, solemn Russian who wore his black hair long, as well as a blue-furred mink that draped across his shoulders like a shawl. Hermione supposed that this was Kipotanutsa Goryanov, who she had heard was coming for the memorial. Goryanov was the deputy minister of the Ovisratsnat, the Office of Miscellaneous Nations, which coordinated with all the magical countries and peoples that didn't warrant their own office within Russia's Department of Abroadnesses. Behind them were a few other professors, Russians, and ministry representatives. Trakar, beneath a large purple umbrella that overshadowed Professor Crouch as well, Cornelius Fudge, the Minister for Magic, Charlie Weasley, sitting beside a Death Eater, or perhaps that was Riddle, and the Death Eater was in Riddle's chair. Eyes of Providence shone above the shoulders of the Russians, including Gorgonov. Riddle stood. He remained silent for a moment, seeming to look at the assembled crowd as his mask turned this way and that. What can I say? I see my students assembled before me and representatives from a few foreign countries, but all of Russia is here today as well, Riddle began, and for a moment his mask turned to an eye of providence on his right. I should have some words for my students, but all my sorrow is for Russia. This was an attack on all of us, Riddle said. Though Karkaroff's hatred might have run most deeply for the country which he abandoned, we nevertheless hold fast to the same ideals which he abhorred. Columbus sat literally at the edge of her seat, not just affected, but nearly entranced. Professor Malfoy appeared anxious, as if he were worried that she'd scoot a little closer and fall out of the stand. Fleur seemed bored. Draco seemed to watch without seeing, if it were possible. My greatest regret is that I was unable to seize Karkaroff when his treachery became clear. As the headmaster of this school, I could hardly risk a student to errant spellcasting, and more that it did not clarify more quickly. By agreeing to the trials of tournament, I invited a killer to this school. I provided the murder scene, and that makes me somewhat complicit in the murder. Riddle was silent for a moment and Hermione wondered at what he was trying to do. I will do what I can to rectify my error. I have already made a request within the wizarding gamut to extend Russia every means of support that we can give. Our international connections have atrophied over the decade of our isolation, but we have other resources at our disposal, and what we can do, we will not fail to do. It is a matter of national pride, and we will be unable to look ourselves in the mirror if we do not expunge the dishonor that Karkaroff has spilled across this nation. Hermione frowned. Maybe it had been unrealistic, but she hadn't expected Riddle to turn a memorial into a political stunt. What other reason would he have to memorialize Mertvago? Hermione somehow doubted that she and Riddle had become such close friends, but if it was all political, then Riddle seemed to have talked it over with the Russians beforehand. Goryanov, gently petting his mink as he watched, looked politely attentive rather than angered, as Hermione might have expected. 
Not many of us are given to Christianity here in Britain. And I think that is a fine thing, because the Christianity of Britain is a muggle's Christianity. But I understand, friend Goryanov, that it is different in Russia, where there is a Christianity that holds fast to old beliefs and old rituals. It is my understanding that it is sometimes your tradition to read from the 118th Psalm. Goryanov nodded, and Riddle made a slight bow with his head. When I was young, and still lived among the Muggles, I was made to be acquainted with the Bible. I would be happy to read an extract for the memory of friend Matvaka. Riddle set a book upon the lid of the sarcophagus and opened its pages. I shall not die, but live, he read, and shall declare the works of the Lord. He hath chastised me, but he hath not delivered me over to death. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice therein. O praise ye the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. He closed the book and looked up from it, straight ahead, as if someone was standing in front of him. Friend Vargo, I speak to you as though you are not dead. For it is said that no one is dead who is remembered. This casket is empty, because it is not for you. Its emptiness is a promise. Your murderer will be found, whatever he may hide, and his body will fill this space. And to you, friend Goyanov. Riddle pulled at the collar of his robe, as if he were about to bare his throat, and with a knife in his other hand he sliced away a bit of the fabric, a midnight black gash that hung from his fingers. Take this as a token of my promise. And the other wizard accepted it in both hands, then stood and faced the sarcophagus. Bestibia dragaya sestra, unas piri nepiruyuts. Kurianov sang, or perhaps incanted, because sparks danced from his rings as he did so. Sparks that floated to the sarcophagus, closed its lid, lifted it from the ground. His fingers danced as well, making intricate motions that reminded Hermione of the little finger twists that Senator Blagana had made, and the mink around his shoulders watched the sparks fly in apparent fascination. He sang and the sarcophagus shimmered and disappeared. Do you really think he sent it all the way back to Russia? Neville whispered. That had been what the school's rumor mill was convinced would happen, but Hermione was unsure. She had probably witnessed some Russian type of portkey charm, but to send an object almost two thousand miles, it was far from impossible. But Goryanov must have still been very proficient. When the service was over, most of the people sitting behind Riddle made their way to Goryanov, to express their condolences, Hermione assumed, and then departed. Riddle himself remained, and so did Goryanov, a couple of other Russians, and Fudge. They seemed to regard him warmly, and the five of them conversed as they walked away. Hermione couldn't help but notice that Riddle made no mention of the Aurors, even though they seemed to have been victims just as much as Mertvago had been. The world moved on in some ways, but the eyes of the whole world were now focused on Britain, 
as if the tournament hadn't already attracted their gaze. Durmstrang was an international school, more so even than Maubeton, and the actions of its rector had cast a dismal shadow over the institution. There were even whispered demands that Durmstrang reveal its precise location and play host to ICW inspectors, but they were whispers only, and no other school of great standing, not even Hogwarts, supported the idea. None of them wanted to set that precedent. Other arguments played out in the Daily Prophet as well. There were many arguments, some of which even came out against Riddle, but it was increasingly common for them to take his side. It was now known that Yaxley, to say nothing of his partners, was unfond of Riddle. He had benefited well from the amnesty, it was said, for he had been quite outspoken against Muggleborns and Half-Bloods, or rather something else which the Prophet refused to put in print. Had they actually conspired with Karkaroff only to be betrayed by then, Rita Skeeter couldn't say for sure, but she certainly had some ideas. In fact, such were the content of some of these ideas that the positions of Amelia Bones, present head of the DMLE, was now in doubt. Soon after the memorial service, Fleur brought Hermione into her room. Observe me carefully, Fleur said after she locked the door. Now it'll teach you a spell. Her wand moved in a half-curve, spiking in the middle. A flieto, Fleur encountered. This is a spell to prevent conversations from being overheard. The muffling charm was a simple one, and Hermione got the hang of it very easily. Why do you think it's going to be useful? she asked. But Fleur refused to answer the question as completely or even as directly as Hermione would have liked. I do not know what the third task is going to be like, but if it is really going to take place in the Forbidden Forest, then I already dislike it. As soon as you are able to cast that spell. Why? I cannot tell you. I simply ask that you trust me, she said. And Hermione nodded. Basic competence in the muffling charm was not enough for Fleur, who insisted that Hermione learn how to cast it silently. This might have been the most frustrating lesson in magic that Hermione had ever gotten. It was one thing to have trouble learning something new, and another thing to have become competent at something and then struggle anew. Hermione knew, on an intellectual level, that nonverbal casting was more than just casting a spell without encanting it. Even beyond a deeper understanding of the spell itself, it also required a kind of focus which Hermione had not yet practiced. But this did little to alleviate Hermione's gut feeling that she had taken one step forward and two back. In these lessons, Fleur was complimented by Samara. Fleur was an adequate instructor, but when it came to nonverbal casting, Samara was the better of any student at Beaubaton, and even equal to some of the professors, for, unlike everyone else, she had never had the option of casting spells any other way. You must be subtle, Fleur said. Someone may diagnose the spell from the movement of your wand. Is this illegal? Hermione asked. She couldn't imagine how, but no other explanation seemed to fit. Not illegal, only it would be inconvenient if someone dispelled it. Hermione decided not to press it. Fleur obviously didn't want to say anything, and she had never steered her wrong before. Maybe it was a trick that Dimitri had taught to her, and Fleur was embarrassed to say anything of their relationship. Hermione would be a little embarrassed to admit it if she herself were involved with him after all. She hadn't seen them together since the time that she walked past Chapel Grove, but there was still that air between them, almost electric. Dimitri stumbled and stammered around her, and Hermione could almost feel his blood pound when he and Fleur were in the same room, while Fleur, even while she worked on other matters, 
nevertheless regarded Dmitri from the corner of her eye with a falcon's attentiveness. In what little free time Hermione had, which mostly consisted of stolen moments away from Fleur's training, there was something else which Hermione wanted to investigate. In Ferrer, not of course for personal use, but because Karkaroff had turned out to be such a mystery. Unfortunately, every book that referenced their creation was in the restricted section, which required a pass. Hermione almost considered asking Riddle, who she was sure would give her one, but if she never spoke to him again it would be too soon. After some thought, Hermione decided to speak with Lupin again at the end of their next class. When Hermione made her request, Lupin was silent for a few moments, his face crossed with consideration. No, he finally said. I understand your curiosity, and I am willing to answer your questions, but I don't want to leave you alone in a room with that kind of dark magic. Hermione frowned in confusion. I thought that Hogwarts approved of dark magic, though. Aren't you a Gryffindor, sir? He smiled, but the expression was short-lived. You're correct on both counts, but there is room for personal discretion. I approve of some dark magic, but not all of it. Some spells, in my opinion, really are better off forgotten, besides which even Headmaster Riddle would agree that some dark magic is dangerous. We're long past the days of classifying harmless genealogical spells as dark just because they require a dab of blood, or whatever offended the politicians that happened to govern on a given day. But some of the dark arts need special preparation and the right background to control. I don't intend to conceal anything from you, but I believe that Inferi are a subject which is best approached with a mentor. Hermione knew that she shouldn't look a gift hippogriff in the mouth, not when that hippogriff was a private lesson with a teacher, but Lupin was keeping her from books. She couldn't help but be a little annoyed as a matter of principle, though she quickly pressed on. In that case, sir, I was wondering how Karkaroff was able to create an Inferius on such short notice. I don't need the details, but the little that I know about them suggests that it isn't as easy as pointing a wand. You're right about that, Miss Granger. Are you familiar with ritual magic? Yes, sir. The category was an artificial one, and both English and French literature on the topic were filled with a variety of definitions. There was common-sense ritual magic, which most everybody considered to be rituals, and then a mess of conflicting theories that tried to say why and ended with a nearly incomprehensible mess. Some theoreticians defined a ritual as an act of magic that depended in part or in whole on circumstances outside the caster, but that was silly. Potions required ingredients, but hardly anyone considered those to be rituals. Other historians liked to consider everything before and besides the use of magical foci to be some kind of ritual magic, but the late medieval spread of wands was thanks in large part to their use in common-sense ritual magic. Do you mean that there were ingredients that Karkaroff needed to have on hand? Exactly right, Miss Granger. Not even the headmaster could have risen an inferius without meeting the exterior requirements of the spell, which, needless to say, I will not describe for you, Lupin said. Let it be sufficient to say that Karkaroff might well have carried the necessary tools with him since he first set foot in Hogwarts. Perhaps he only had them on hand that day because he plans to reanimate Matfago or foresaw trouble at some point. Suffice it to say, I have to reevaluate the man a little, not in terms of his goodness, of course, but his abilities. Lupin sighed and shook his head. I'm sorry, Miss Granger, but I have to prepare for my next class. You're awfully busy, Hermione observed, and he nodded. I teach only two elective classes, Lupin said. 
but between them and the wolfsbane potion, I admit I sometimes get through these classes only through sheer force of will. That evening she found a slip of paper in her sourdough roll. Hermione sighed, mentally prepared herself, and unfolded the paper. It was not, however, an invitation. Riddle had given her a pass to the restricted section, good for any book, and good until June 1998. Hermione resisted the urge to glare in his direction, because giving a reaction like that felt as though she were handing him a victory, however petty, but she couldn't bring herself to tear it up either, no matter how much that seemed like letting him win. Hermione's curiosity about Inferi had been satisfied, well, not entirely, but she intended to take Lupin's warning seriously and not delve into the subject on her own. But on the other hand, a book was a book was a book, and there was something tantalizing to the idea that she had unlimited access to the restricted section of the Hogwarts library. Every few days there was another report from another department in the Ministry. Slowly, but with the inevitability of a mudslide, the force of a Wizengamot inquiry began to assemble itself. Politicians made speeches, citizens wrote letters to their Wizengamot representatives, and the editorial sections blazed. The fever reached a new peak when Rita Skeeter reported that the DMLE was investigating Karkarov's role in the murder of the Death Eater that had been killed a couple months earlier. There was no name given, nor even a mention of the word Death Eater. They were simply the victim. Skeeter's article threw the Durmstrang students into a greater melancholy than before, so it was no surprise that Victor, already dispirited, looked more lost than ever before, and the Dimitri's absence, once nearly invisible, now stuck out like a purple thumb. Durmstrang had yet to appoint a replacement rector, and other adult representatives were steadily being rejected by Riddle. They might have been conspirators with Karkaroff, and it seemed that, in the absence of adult supervision, Dmitri simply wasn't showing up to most of his classes. He was not a kind man, or an enlightened man, Dmitri said one night, as he and Hermione lingered after their increasingly infrequent occlumency sessions. But I do not think he did it. Dmitri was no more a friend to blood purism than Victor, so his faith in Karkaroff befuddled Hermione. The whole reason he came here was to discredit Riddle, wasn't it? Maybe that wasn't enough for him, or he lost patience, Hermione suggested. No, Hermione, he is not being a good man by any of the means, but I am sure that he did not kill that Death Eater. Dmitri took a deep, shuddering breath. But Vago he killed even if I do not understand the reason, but not the other, no, Hermione, he did not do it. Dimitri's face fell into his hands. I just do not think that he would do so, he said, and his tone was faint and stricken, as though he were wringing the words from his mouth. But if he killed Mutvago, then why not this other person, she said, a little dissatisfied that she couldn't put a name on them. The notion had somehow failed to strike her during the first murder, but after the DMLE connected Karkaroff to the other killing, Hermione had realized that there might be a way to find out who that Death Eater had been. She had spent hours paging through the obituaries to look for someone else, someone who was more than just the honorable representative. In the end, however, Hermione had admitted defeat. If Riddle's proxy had been pronounced dead at all, and not merely sent on an extended business trip to China or something like that, then it would be a simple thing to shift the date of their death supply an alternate cause, or otherwise muddy the connection. Draco was more familiar with the who's who of Riddle's circle, 
He knew that his cousin was a Death Eater anyhow, which was one more person that Hermione would have guessed, and perhaps he could have noticed something, but she didn't want to drag him into a passing curiosity. Even if she found out who Karkaroff had really killed, what would that do her? I suppose that is true, but I wonder about the why, even so. Her riot provided a witness, did it not? It certainly had done so, Hermione had to admit. While Mervago's Eye of Providence had initially been closed, it opened, briefly, weakly, already damaged, and had witnessed the initial moments of Karkarov's attack. The Russian government had provided a copy of Mervago's eyesight to the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, and uninvolved Russian citizens had sold copies as well. The Daily Prophet and other newspapers had included frames, and it wouldn't have surprised Hermione to learn that somebody at Hogwarts could get one for her. The report said that there was an attempt to disrupt the enchantments, Hermione said. That was no great secret, and she had expected Dimitri to know, but she couldn't blame him for avoiding the news. He clearly tried to detach her eye, and it was possible that he thought he had succeeded. Instead, Karkarov's attempt had triggered some kind of signal, and Matvago's superiors panicked. According to the Prophet, the Russian government had decided that Karkaroff and Mertvago had arranged their meeting in Britain so that he could help her to defect. By the time that Karkaroff fled Hogwarts, a contingent of Russian egregory were already en route to Britain while Goryanov coordinated with the ministry. Hermione and Victor did not go on further dates per se, but here and then, for a few minutes or an hour, they found the time to meet. Sometimes they just looked out on the Black Lake. Other times they spoke about the peatlands of Bulgaria or televisions— Victor had never seen a cinema, let alone a television, or even Quidditch, anything but Hogwarts and Durmstrang and the murders that had entwined them. Hermione mentioned Dimitri once in passing, but Victor winced, and Hermione quietly removed that topic from conversation. Elsewhere, Fleur and Samara continued to drill Hermione on the muffling charm, but they were hardly the ones to instruct her. Adalia continued their dueling practice with redoubled fervor, and Hermione continued to eat the dirt more often than not, even when Lino joined Hermione, two against one. Vicente drilled her in curses and their counters and various kinds of enchantment that might prove useful in one situation or another. All in all, it was a shock, but not entirely a surprise, when Hermione realized at half-past midnight that she'd missed the deadline for a comparison of muggle and magical translations of Marcus Aurelius's meditations, which had passed two days earlier without her noticing it. The most troubling thing might have been that she was too tired to care at that point, but then she was too tired to care about that, too. It wasn't until the next morning that Hermione began to hyperventilate. After Fleur poured calming draft into Hermione's morning coffee, they discussed the situation, and Fleur agreed, somewhat reluctantly, to reduce the onslaught of extracurriculars. The days passed, and on the night before the third task, Madame Maxime called Hermione to her office. Fleur was leaving just as Hermione arrived, probably having been summoned for the same reason. I have personally supervised many aspects of the third task, and I've been involved in the management process every step of the way, Madame Maxime said to Hermione. I have no reason to think that the third task will be any more dangerous than the other tasks. However, if you would like, the international situation means that it is not possible to remove you from Britain, but there is nothing about the murder investigation which says that you have to participate in the trials of tournament. Hermione tried not to frown. Madame, we've discussed this before, she said. If I refused to participate, then you would have to expel me from the baton. Maxime frowned. 
I could choose to resign. The Val considers my actions, not yours, she said. And Hermione blinked. I don't recall that being an option last time. Last time one of the judges had not been murdered by one of her peers. When it was put like that, Hermione could see where the headmistress was coming from. Do you think that it might have been October? It was Madame Maxime's time to look shocked. I beg your pardon? What I mean is, you said that the murder changed how you feel about this. It changed what options were on the table, but maybe October has gone to all this effort in order to oust you so that he could put someone else in your place. He would have had to offer Kargarov something grand indeed. Or maybe Kargarov was forced, Hermione replied, realizing the possibility only a little more quickly than her lips moved. I don't know what October could have on him, but he used to control the Secretariat for Foreign Affairs, and, and they're connected to the Black Room, aren't they? He could have gotten anything on Cockcroft, something terrible enough to— Why? interrupted Maxime. To get you out of Puppeton, just like this. He must have thought you'd step down from the beginning, but that didn't work, and— and even after I was hurt in the second task and you still hadn't, he had to force your hand somehow, Hermione said, words spilling from her mouth as soon as they entered her brain. Don't you see? I see no reason for October to go to such lengths to expel me from Beauveton. I have done nothing to offend him, nor his Christian majesty. Are you sure? Hermione asked. She hadn't forgotten how Skeeter had outed Madame Maxime as being partly non-human, and while it wasn't exactly forbidden to do so, that wasn't the kind of thing that could go into a national paper without some kind of reaction— so long as Maxime never said anything herself, it was impermissible to ask, but now that an important, albeit foreign, paper had gone ahead and reported it, I am sure, Maxime said, and Hermione wasn't sure whether to feel relieved. It had been nice in a twisted way to see everything come together, and now she was lost again. If October had plans to use Hermione and the trial was a tournament to push out Maxime, then the timeline didn't exactly fit, but he might have known beforehand. But if the headmistress thought that October didn't have it out for her, then she was probably right. Probably. If I'm stuck in Britain, then I might as well participate in the tournament, Hermione said. I'm nearly done. And she didn't want to let anyone, but herself, let Fleur down. There was nothing to, to worry about, or at least what she had to worry about had nothing to do with the tournament. Besides, I'm pretty sure that Riddle doesn't want to get me killed so I'm probably safer in the tournament than anywhere else. Maxime raised her eyebrows. The ellipsis was nearly audible. I don't like it, but he's made me, or he's making me, into some kind of icon for Britain. Don't you think that it might set his plans back and embarrass him a little if I ended up dead? He could try to make you a martyr, Maxime suggested. And Hermione frowned at that. That was a genuine possibility— what would be the purpose of the conversations that he'd had with her in that case? Would Riddle really go to such lengths to speak with, to try to persuade someone that was meant to die? Riddle might want a martyr, but not before she had converted. But in fairness to Madame Maxime, that meant that Hermione was perhaps half in danger from Riddle, because she had been half swayed by the Riddle doctrine of acceptable risks. The third task might maim her, but Hermione had been maimed already, and here she was, no worse for wear. Perhaps Peregrine Derrick's slow, fiery mutilation had been terrible, was still terrible, but most of that lay in the sadism that it betrayed. 
Hermione had seen him around in the Great Hall, and there wasn't the slightest sign of what had been done to him at the beginning of the school year. Nothing that happens to Hermione had actually hurt her permanently. She could barely get hurt a bit more, even if it were for the right reasons. Fleur was still there when Hermione left. Did Madame Maxime ask you to leave the tournament, or just me? It depends on your point of view, Fleur said. She strongly encouraged me to leave, so that you would leave as well. I'm not going anywhere. Even if you do leave, Hermione added. She wasn't about to lose to Riddle either. Of course not. We are all stuck in Britain for the time being, are we not? Fleur said. But perhaps... I do not like it when you put yourself in danger. How do you think I feel when you do it? Hermione asked. And Fleur had no answer to that. When they headed out to the Quidditch pitch a few days later, they had no more idea what might go on than the rest of the student body. Everyone knew that the Forbidden Forest would be involved somehow. The buzz of activity about it seemed to have intensified every other day, and there were no vomited treasures to suggest what lay in store. Dimitri hadn't been of much help either, though Hermione couldn't blame him. The invisibility cloak, it is not concealing all things, he explained. Pressure of my feet upon the ground, movement of the air. Almost I think I was detected sometimes. I do not think it wise to do again. The ground was turfed with grass that rose a little past Hermione's ankles. One could hardly have suspected what had transpired upon and above it just a couple of days earlier, when Fred Weasley and Gregory Goyle crushed Ginny's catching hand with an expertly aimed pair of bludgers, one from either side. An attempt to guide the broomstick with her broken hand went topsy-turvy, and Ginny ended up falling from her broomstick and catching the snitch in her throat on the way down. Rack Harrow and another healing student had to be called over to remove it. Hermione hadn't been there to see it happen, but Draco and Ginny herself had been talking about nothing else. Despite everything, the Hufflepuffs had won the game. 220 points to 210. The judges had already taken their seats. Madame Maxime looked more uncomfortable than usual. Karkaroff's seat was empty. Riddle was Riddle. Behind them were the three new judges, a middle-aged wizard with ash-blonde hair, a short wizard with a shorter beard, and a witch with hard features that seemed to have been cut out of stone. Before Griffiths had even arrived, let alone announced their names, Victor was glaring at them. Victor, what is it? asked Hermione. Rector Kargorov's judge, he said. And Hermione looked more carefully at the ash-haired man who sat at the far back of what had been, not too long ago, Kargorov's column of seats. Now Kargorov and Mertvago's seats were empty, and the man who remained looked anxious and uncomfortable, looking this way and that, but especially at Riddle. Okay, what is he all about? Victor didn't dislike people without a good reason. Even Karkaroff had gotten the benefit of the doubt, at least for a little while. That is, Kaloyan Selina, Victor said. His mother, Yubov Selina, tortured and killed seventeen muggles in Asvenograd. Then she let her out of Furnata, because the government wanted her to fight Grindelwald. Victor's nose wrinkled. She is still free. And now she has medals and statues. What did it mean that Karkaroff had invited her son here? Senator Blogana had come from Poland-Lithuania. Adufiraru was Transylvanian. Both hailed from Eastern Europe, while Riddle and Madame Maxime had taken care to range a little further from their backyard. If nothing else, it suggested that Karkaroff had a different way of thinking about his judges, but his choices seemed political. Finally, Hermione asked, Do you know how he feels about Russia? He does not like it much, Victor said, and that confirmed it for Hermione. 
Karkaroff had definitely picked people who might be concerned about Russia. Why had Karkaroff killed Matvago then, or perhaps why had he killed her then and not at another time? Had she caught him off guard? Had something forth an adjustment to his timetable? Victor thought that Karkaroff had brought Matvago here so that his pure-blood champion could beat Riddle's champion in front of all of Russia. It is not easy to live so close to the Russians, Victor admitted. But Bulgaria was an empire once. Slanina does not fear that the Russians may bring an end to peace. He hates that Bulgaria cannot end it herself. Griffiths approached from out of a small tent and they quieted. Are you looking forward to the third task? Or well, it's going to be a shame that this only comes around every five years, Griffiths said. I'm going to miss this, and you? Hermione looked away. I have found the recent events of... Obeser, Victor said, muttering a little at the end. My heart is made sorry by them. That wasn't the try was a tournament, Victor, Griffith said brightly. Just adjacent to it, so to speak. Now let's get a few things in order, she said, and her voice seems to carry to the stands now. The third task will be different to the rest. There'll be no evaluations, absolutely no input from the judges, except when they have to consider a possible disqualification. Win or lose, honor or disgrace, it all rides on what you do here. Griffiths held up an ornate silver goblet, not too unlike the Goblet of Fire, save for that it shone dimly. This is not the Triwizard Cup. It is only a facsimile of a Triwizard Cup. The real thing has been put somewhere in the Forbidden Forest, which is for these three champions. For this task only, not quite as forbidden as before. Which is not to say that it's going to be any less foreboding. She laughed, and the laughter of a few people in the stands carried down to meet her own. Whoever is the first to find and touch the Triwizard Cup will win. There is no second place, there is no third. There is only honor and shame. There will be no confusion about who wins and who loses either. For the duration of the third task, Headmaster Riddle has suppressed the anti-portkey jinxes. Ordinarily, no portkey would work on the grounds, but in the interest of giving you all a good show and providing a little spectacle, the cup has been specially permitted to bypass the wards. Griffiths made several theatrical gestures with her wand as she continued. The first champion to touch the Triwizard Cup will immediately be brought here, while the losers will have to slouch their way out of the forest on foot. With the eyes of the late Kritz and Vago, such an enchantment is unnecessary, but it is considered a minor tradition of the Triwizard Tournament, and one which our safety-minded judges have not seen fit to discard. The Triwizard Cup was first made a portkey in 1612, Four years after Ingar Drakenberg and Zvin touched the cup at more or less the same time. From one angle, it seemed as though Griffin had touched the cup first, but from another, that the winner was Drakenberg. Hermione had turned that up in the library. There were still debates about it, although fewer in recent times as the tournament grew more distant in history. Hermione considered that its revival this past year might also mean the unburial of many ancient arguments. Any questions? What's in that? said Hermione. It wouldn't hurt to ask. Your worst nightmares, Griffith said with a flourish. Of course. After Hermione failed to say anything for a couple of seconds, Griffiths proceeded to introduce the judges. Our first visiting judge is Karoyan Zalina, the director of Diabolus in Bulgaria, she said. The boos, which came almost as quickly as Griffith spoke his name, were, if anything, louder than those which had greeted Radu Firaru.
and Hermione wondered whether it was something to do with Selenina himself or because he had been nominated by Karkaroff. Either way, Griffiths looked taken aback and waited to continue until several moments after everyone quieted down. Right then, next, from Institut de Nettoie de Saint-Capien of Belterre, is Onesifre Aout, Professor of Transfiguration. Him, at least, Hermione had heard of, but she was hardly impressed. Aout was fine, perhaps, decent enough, if nobody better could be found, but he couldn't hold a candle to Professor McGonagall. Setting aside any questions about her impartiality, it still would have been impossible to bring McGonagall to Britain. The amnesty only applied to those who had remained in Britain, so she was still a wanted criminal for her activities under, really, her support of the previous ministry. Finally, I am pleased to announce the attendance of Her Elective Highness, the Second Consul of the Atlantic Commonwealth and Co-Protector of its Liberties, Caroline Rappaport. Hermione had heard of her as well, but nothing good. The Unitarian Populist Party was a chip off Riddle's block for the dark arts against the Muggles, and, well, one thing that was genuinely in Riddle's favor was his egalitarianism. Even the Old Britain had a more enlightened view of goblins than the UPP, but then, why had he invited her of all people? Politics made strange bedfellows. To each of the champions, Griffith handed out either one coin or two, as many tokens as they had personally obtained in the second task, Hermione thought. They were gold as well, and probably the same size. It was hard to tell for sure when the tokens had been rather larger, relatively speaking, when Hermione had acquired them, but they weren't featureless like the tokens were. One side bore the image of a tree, and the reverse side displayed two concentric circles. After a moment's thought, Hermione guessed that it was supposed to be a seed, though she kept in mind the possibility that it was a solar alchemical symbol, which also would have matched the tree imagery on the obverse side. What that are these for? asked Victor. That's for you to find out, Griffith said. After the coins, Griffith handed out little medals, each emblazoned with the crest of their respective school, or the school that they were representing. These are port keys, Griffith said. And they will deliver you to your starting positions. What do you mean by positions? asked Fleur, emphasizing the plurality in positions. This is the ultimate task, and there's no way to compensate for defeat this time. The judges thought that it would be tremendously unfair, not to mention boring, if a duel broke out more or less immediately and two of the champions were incapacitated before the third task had really got going. The three of you have cooperated with each other so far, but maybe one of you has been plotting a betrayal now that only one of you can win. Well, we can only hope, Griffith said, smiling. Anyway, it was decided that the three of you would enter the Forbidden Forest from different starting positions. Should you find each other thereafter, there will be no restrictions on your conduct. You can continue to cooperate if that's what you want, Griffith said. But I really do hope you'll consider the merits of a sudden betrayal. Think of the spectators, if you would. That was frustrating, but she could manage. It was only a forest. She wasn't going to get eaten in the first five minutes. That seemed like a rather ignoble end for Britain's champion. Hermione, as she reached out for the Hogwarts crest, asked, When are they going to become active? There were a variety of triggers that could be used, but it was probably timed. If the port key were merely keyed to the touch of a particular individual, then Fleur and Victor, who had already taken theirs, would have been transported already. It was difficult enough to enchant a port key that would activate only when a particular individual was touching it, let alone lay out an enchantment that would do so if and only if they were the only person to touch it. 
Like some other spells, portkey charms had difficulty recognizing persons as such, let alone distinguishing between or counting them. When it's time, Griffiths replied, and then, speaking more loudly, she said, Your departure time will be based on your total scores so far. Hermione Granger, having gotten the highest score, will be transported first. Victor Crumb's portkey will activate thirty minutes later, and Fleur de Recur's portkey, twenty minutes after that. You have one objective, and one only. Obtain the Triwizard Cup. Of course, you might find things to be a little more tricky than that. Hermione, who wanted to be able to get back in touch with Fleur and Victor at some point, considered how she would manage it. She could use a signaling charm, perhaps, but the Forbidden Forest seems to be quite densely treed, so it might not be noticed if they were far off and not looking for a sign. There was some sort of obscure trick with Patronuses that Hermione had read about, but she had never learned the normal Patronus charm, let alone delved into half-theoretical variations. She turned the portkey over in her hand a couple of times as she thought, until it suddenly didn't seem to want to move, as if something were holding it in place. She briefly let go, and the portkey followed her fingers, regaining contact in only a moment. I won't, she whispered. But before Hermione could think or say anything more about it, something pulled at her navel and she was yanked forward, and to the side, and all around, in every conceivable direction. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Dayswitch, under a Creative Commons license, with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at sangabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.